0: What's good, Rocky Peak? It is so good joining you together on this post-Christmas weekend. So wherever it is you're joining us from, welcome to you, whether it's a living room, a back room, by yourself, or a small group of friends, or one of our home churches, I'm so glad you're here this weekend, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Special welcome to you. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited. We're going to have a lot of fun this weekend as we kick off a brand new mini-series. So like Chris has said, I'm going to invite you, haven't already, go ahead and grab your note sheet. Go ahead and grab uh, your Bible. By the way, I'm realizing I didn't introduce myself. My name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Now that that's out of the way, I'm going to pray and we're going to dive right in. So let's pray. Jesus, the Christmas holiday is over, but the truth of the baby that was born in the manger is just getting started. Jesus, what was you, when you were born in that manger, It was the beginning of the end. It was the beginning of the end of a life that was dominated by sin, of a world that was living in bondage, of an eternity separated from you. It was the beginning of the end of the devil and his dominion and the schemes. When you were born in that major, literally heaven broke through onto earth, came, lived the life that we could not live, died the deaths that we should have died so that we may have a new life now and new life for all of eternity. And so yes, Jesus, eventually, some slower than others, the decorations are gonna go back in the boxes. But our prayer is that our commitment to you and what is met and shown through the manger does not go back in a box, but truly mark and change our lives. And so as we get to kick off a brand new miniseries, we thank you for your word that we're gonna open up that is living and active. As I often pray as the communicator, I pray that I would become much less this weekend and that you, our King, Jesus, would become much, much more. And it's in your name that we all said, Amen. Well, Rocky Peak, I'm excited because this weekend, we're going to be kicking off a brand new two-week miniseries called Clarity, A Renewed Vision for an Uncertain Future. And so to illustrate the heart behind these next two weeks, I want to go ahead and I want to share a story from my own life. Now, something that I've mentioned often throughout the years as I've been a teacher here at Rocky Peak is that my absolute favorite place in the entire world is New York City. And I realized that every time I I say that it's often met with disbelief. People go, really? New York? That's just how I roll. But I love New York City. I've had the opportunity to go many, many times. It's a magical wonderland to me. But I'm thinking back to the very first time I'd ever gone to New York. This is way back in 2008. My wife, Megan, and I, we went and spent a week in July in New York, And the very first time you go to New York, you have to do all the tourist things, right? So we did. We went to Times Square. We went to the Statue of Liberty. We went to Ellis Island. We definitely ate a lot of pizza. And one of the things I was most excited to do was to go to the very top of the Empire State Building. Not only because it's such an iconic fixture of New York. Come on, that's where King Kong himself died. But one of my favorite things to this day of New York City is is the skyline. It is just absolutely beautiful to me not just to be able to witness the skyline but to see it from an elevated position. And another reason why I was so excited is that the entire week we were there it was absolutely perfect weather. It was blue, it was sunny, you could see from miles around you. So I was looking forward to this so much. And so the morning that we were supposed to go to the Empire State Building we went to go get on the subway and as we were walking through the streets i noticed something that was new it was foggy now to be honest I didn't think much of it. Because it had been clear and sunny, and because I'm from SoCal in the valley, I figured, you know what? It's gonna burn off, it's gonna go away, it's gonna clear, there's no way it won't. Have you ever been in those moments where you have absolute confidence with no reasoning to back it up? And so we go to the Empire State Building. If you've ever been there, it takes a while. You have to wait in line. It takes a while to go up. We finally get to the top. I'm like a kid at Christmas. I run out and I can't see. My expectation was that the fog would have been gone, but now it's not. I can't see. At best, I can see a little bit ahead of me, but my vision is severely limited. In fact, we're gonna throw up on your screens right now, this is an actual picture that I took from that event. And this was absolutely heartbreaking and disappointing to me, because all I wanted was clarity so I could see what was in front of me. And nature had other plants. Now, the reason I share that story is because I think it really underlines the heart of these next two weeks. See, Rocky Peak, we are about to start a brand new year. And let's say it all together, thank God We are about to start a brand new year, but the reality of 2021 is that the future, what 2021 is going to bring is unclear, isn't it? If we think back to a year ago, which I understand feels like 50 years ago, but if we think back to where we were a year ago, when we were thinking about what 2020 would bring with it, we could have never predicted this year, could we have? We could have never predicted how 2020 would have turned out, both in terms of the national and global heartaches and suffering and trial that we've had to deal with, as well as the local, the state, uh, the national, as I mentioned earlier, but for so many of us, we couldn't have predicted the personal trials, the personal hardships that we've had to go through, in addition or because of everything else that's been going on. And I got to admit, as I get ready to face a new year, I'm sure many of you can relate with me. Rocky Peak, I am exhausted. I'm exhausted as a pastor. I'm exhausted as a person. I'm exhausted as a parent. I'm exhausted as an individual that has no idea what's to come. And so if I'm completely honest with you, I'm looking at 2021 more with fear and trepidation because I can't see. And I'm sure many of you can relate that we all share a deep desire that all we want is a little bit of clarity as to what's ahead. All we want is to know that things are gonna get better. But again, as we're going to start, as we look ahead to 2021, as far as our circumstances go, the future is unclear. There is no clarity there. And so the question becomes, if I can't gain clarity from what's in front of me, then where does my clarity come from? And that's the foundational question that we're going to be looking at over these next two weeks. When we go to scripture, as we often should be doing, when we open up scripture and we see men and women just like us in situations of prolonged seasons of suffering, just like we find ourselves in, what we see is this beautiful example and this model that we might not be able to see what's ahead. But when we look at what's above, when we turn to the Jesus around us, it opens the eyes of our heart, which then transforms the way we see our future. What we see in Scripture is clarity does not come from what's ahead, but it comes from what's above. And so as we kick things off this week, that's what we're going to begin to unpack. But what I want to do before we jump into our Scriptures, there on the front of your note sheet, there is a lengthy but a wonderful quote by an author author named Clarissa Moult. And I gotta tell you a little bit, I have just recently become familiar with her as a writer and what I've seen has been excellent. But one of the reasons why she's popped up on my radar, so to speak, is just in the last year, Clarissa Moll, she's about my age, unexpectedly became a widow and a single mom of four kids. And it's in her grief that she's taken to writing about what God has done through it. And with that, this is what she writes, Throughout the scriptures, God invites people to open their eyes. When Elisha's men fear that they are surrounded, the prophet prays, open their eyes, and God dispels their anxieties with the truth of his presence. To the exhausted, frustrated Job, God exhorts, look around, see who's in charge here. Job rediscovers a mighty God who creates and sustains. When two blind men on the road beg for mercy, Jesus offers both physical and spiritual sight. When we are exhausted, God offers a simple cure. Open your eyes. Gaze upon my beauty. See my power. Look to me for all you need. Jesus takes the dust of our lives, infuses it with his healing presence, and presses it to our eyes saying, do you see anything now? we find balm for our exhaustion as we open our eyes to His goodness. Isn't that wonderful? And so as we turn to scripture, what we're going to do starting today, but over these next two weeks, is we're going to be spending some time in one specific chapter of the Old Testament, the first half of our Bible, 1 Samuel 17. So if you've got your physical Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. If you're following along with your note sheet, we're in a section titled The Champion from Gath. and I'm going to invite you to go to 1 Samuel 17, which is the account of David and Goliath. Now, as you're turning there, I need to acknowledge two things real quick. Often when you hear that we're going to spend some time in the account of David and Goliath, there's two assumptions or two rather temptations that can happen in our hearts. The first is there can be a temptation to look at David and Goliath and to go, well, it's simply a kid's story. Why are we spending time with it? to which I gotta remind you that 1 Samuel, the Old Testament was not originally written to children. It's great that we teach it to our kids, but spoiler alert, this account ends with a beheading that we conveniently leave out of the time, out of the stories we tell kids. But the second assumption we can make is this is one of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture. And if you're a long-time Christ follower, you have heard the account of David and Goliath many times in your life. And often when we come across a story that's very familiar to us, it can be easy for us as Christ followers to assume, we get it, I know what this is about, move on. And let me implore you, that's a very dangerous place to be. And the reason I say that is because we are limiting what God's Holy Spirit can do through his very voice. And so as we go into 1 Samuel 17, on behalf of us, I just simply pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the truth that's found in your word. Amen. So 1 Samuel 17, starting at verse 1. And again, it's me. Have your pens ready, have your highlight functions ready to go. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled in Socah in Judah they pitched camp at Ephes Damon between Soka and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and threw, drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. And so we begin with an account that Israel and this group of people called the Philistines are going to war against each other. But we need a little bit more context over who the Philistines is. And again, I'm just going to scratch the surface here. But the Philistines are a group of warlike conquerors, not just in biblical history, but in global history. We see in Egyptian history that they they tried unsuccessfully to conquer Egypt numerous times as well. And so we encounter the Philistines as early as Genesis 21 through Abraham in the Old Testament, but particularly at this point in Old Testament history. For the last several hundred years, since the time of what we call the Judges, they have been the greatest military threat to Israel. So in chapter 17, this battle that is about where the two forces have taken their camps on hillsides, this is not an isolated event, but this is a prolonged, hear me clearly, the Philistine threat is a significantly long, hundreds of years, and a significantly hard thing, hard trial for the nation of Israel. And as we continue in verse 4, This long-running hardship is about to get much, much more difficult. Verse 4, a champion, would you underline or highlight that single word, champion? A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was 6 cubits in a span traditionally in the hebrew this is translated to be over 9 feet he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5000 shekels which can be which can range from 125 to 150 pounds on his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, and were between from 15 to 25 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Would you underline that? This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Would you underline or highlight that? Dismayed and terrified. Okay, so again, we are clearly not dealing with a kid's story here because this account, this description is like no other in the Old testament it is not referring to goliath as a giant which is the word we commonly use because that can create images of like jack and the beanstalk or other children's fables what the author what the namesake samuel is describing very clearly is a warrior and so as it goes into this very detailed description try to picture this massive warrior wrapped in metal Now, not only am I saying try to picture this, but emotionally, try to put yourselves in the position of the the army of Israel. These were soldiers, maybe not all full-time soldiers, but these were hardened men that had seen battle, but they had never seen anything like this. There was no training for Goliath. There was no planning or expectation for Goliath. What they are facing now seemingly is invincible and unbeatable. And so we can relate emotionally with why they felt defeated, dismayed, and terrified. Goliath was beyond anything that they knew. Goliath was beyond anything that they could see. They could not see past him. Their vision was completely focused. And again, if we take a step back and understand that this is not an isolated incident, we need to emotionally connect to the depth of why their hearts sank. I mentioned that these battles with the Philistines had been significant hardships for many, many, many years for Israel. These Philistines were a national nightmare. But now, here we are. And if you actually skip down to verse 16, for 40 days, would you underline that? For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Can you imagine that? And here's the truth. I bet you can because of how long we find ourselves in the season we've been in. Each day that Israel wakes up likely feels like a loss because the problem has not been taken care of. Maybe there are murmurings of solutions or plans, but they haven't come to fruition. Each day probably adds to their fear or anger or confusion or anxiety. Each day adds further and further to their inability to see past what is right in front of them. They lack clarity. And not only that, but I think one of the biggest disappointments of all for them is Saul. King Saul was supposed to be their solution. Now I don't have the ability or the time this weekend to be able to dig too much into this because the context of Saul really is a message in itself. But just briefly, I'm scratching the surface, God had set up Israel to only have the Lord God as king. But due to some very real trials and suffering that the nation experienced, both corruption from its religious leadership, as well as these national threats and times of suffering, the people began to demand a physical king. In essence, what we read in the chapters before is they say that they wanted a physical king, and I'm paraphrasing, because that makes sense to us. That solution makes sense. It makes us in line with people around us, give us something that's easier to see. So in other words, Israel sought a king because they were looking for clarity outside of God's leadership. In fact, when God explains this to the prophet Samuel, God tells Samuel, they are rejecting me through this. They are rejecting me me for something much smaller and again let's pause rocky peak and understand that whenever we find ourselves in a prolonged and an unexpected season of suffering or uncertainty especially in the present where we find ourselves now at the end of 2020 we can relate with that can't we We can relate with that temptation that when it comes to the inability to see what's ahead, we feel that temptation by the enemy, it's spiritual attack to reject Jesus as king in our lives and instead give the leadership of our lives, give the leadership of our hearts to another, whether it's a person, a group, whether it's an emotion, whatever that may be. And the reality that we're seeing in 1 Samuel 17 is just like Saul, whenever we give the king, the place of king in our lives to anyone other than Christ, that king will always find himself outmatched. Saul was their best solution, and here he is, just like them, completely outmatched. Here's the nation of Israel going, we thought that Saul would be the solution that would open our eyes, and now we can't see anything. But the beautiful thing is their story doesn't end there. See, David has already come into this account as we've been jumping around, and what we're gonna see is while Israel cannot see past this champion from Gath, David brings with him a different vision. David sees things very differently and we're gonna see that he has learned to see from God's perspective and he's gonna model where true clarity comes from. So jump ahead with me to verse 26. David asked the men, these are soldiers as he's been bringing care packages to his brothers on the front line. What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Would you underline that? This uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Now David heard Goliath's taunt and his threat. And what he is stating here is actually a picture of how David's eyes are open to a much bigger reality because of who God is. When David refers to Goliath as an uncircumcised Philistine, yes, he's referring to that physical mark and act, but he's not solely referring to that because that has a bigger theological significance. This is actually a theological statement. Who is this man that does not have a relationship with the Lord God, our King? So where is David's vision on God? And as David sees this very real problem, this very real trial, this very real reason why so many are suffering, immediately his vision is on God going, I see him, but I see God as being much, much bigger. And so as we jump down to verse 32, David eventually gets an audience with King Saul himself. And David said to Saul, verse 32, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine. Would you underline that? You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. David was likely even too young to officially be in military service, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Okay, real talk, if that was me, the sheep would die. I would happily feed the sheep if it meant getting away from the lion or the bear. So David is definitely made of tougher stuff than I am. Verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised fil. Phil- Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, the Lord who rescued me, would you underline or highlight that? The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. You got to agree with Saul at first, don't you? This doesn't make any sense. Here is this young shepherd kid. Hey, that warrior wrapped in metal that these hardened warriors are so afraid of that you're afraid of? Yeah, I'll go and take care of it. If I was in Saul's position, I'm willing to bet if you were in Saul's position, we probably would have responded the same way. No, this doesn't make sense with what I can see. And in fact, again, Saul becomes amazing and relatable for the moment we're in, isn't it? Because when we face a Goliath, when we face a champion, a trial, a season of suffering, We often go to the Lord and go, what am I going to do? What should I do? Lead me, God. And often the Lord will will tell us his plan, and it makes no sense. Have you experienced in these seasons when you go to the Lord for deliverance and he says, you know what I want to do? I want to wait. Wait. Or have you gone before the Lord and said, these people... Whoever they may be, they are my enemies. They are hurting me. They are hurting what I stand for. They are hurting my beliefs. They are hurting everything that is good. And the Lord responds with, Serve them. Love them. What? Have you ever gone to the Lord and said, God, I've lost so much. Please give it back. Restore. And the Lord's response is, Let go. Let go of what you think is yours. I respond, we respond like Saul did. God, that makes no sense. But what David models is that if we truly will experience God's victory, it's only experienced through following his will, doing things his way. And did you catch something in that David's humility that even though in essence he gives this resume that he's fought these wild animals, he says he will be rescued. He's very clear, I am not gonna beat Goliath, but God is gonna rescue me just like he's gonna rescue you, King Saul. And so as we continue in verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them I cannot go in these, he said to Saul. I am not used to them. So he took them off. Would you underline that? That's actually key. So he took them off, verse 40. Then he took off, took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. And so we see this contrast in Saul that again is really relatable, that seemingly... Saul wants to trust in what God is doing because he's going to let David go and represent him. But Saul is still clinging on to what makes sense to him, what makes sense based on what he can currently see. So he dresses David in what's likely his own armor, and this is the king's armor. This is likely the finest armor in the entire army, but it's not a good fit, both physically, but also what we see in this example, it's not a good fit spiritually. This is not how God wants us to move forward. And so when David takes off the armor, it is a powerful model for them, and it is a powerful model for us still today at the end of 2020, that if we want to experience clarity, we need to remove the armor of what we think are man-made solutions and move forward under the protection of the Lord God himself. But David is not minimizing the reality and the danger of his situation. We often think that that sling is like a Dennis the Menace kid slingshot. This is the weapon of a warrior, a differently trained warrior than Saul. But David is preparing for battle, but he's doing so first and foremost by being focused on who God is and knows that victory is gonna come from that. And so as we skip ahead to verse 45, again, as you, I hope you spend some time in the entirety of this yourself. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Would you underline that? But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. In ancient warfare in particular, to cut off an enemy's head was a sign of total victory. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Would you underline the entirety of that verse? All those gathered will know that it is not by sword or spear. In other words, by trusting in God, by committing to do it in God's way, David is saying God is going to show just how powerful he is. Now, again, the truth of that statement, you have to picture this. As David goes down and faces Goliath, try to imagine how vulnerable and insignificant David seemed in comparison Try to imagine the emotions that the army is experiencing. We're not told that Saul consulted with his army about sending David down there. He simply made that call. Can you imagine soldier after soldier going, wait, what? That's the plan? That's who's going to represent us? Can you imagine the anger? Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine the disbelief in those troops? Because this does not make sense with what they can see. Yet again, David models his clarity. Like I mentioned, he prepared for battle. He is not minimizing the danger. He is not minimizing the reality of what it is he faces. But his vision is locked on who God is rather than primarily locked on what Goliath brings. And because of that, David knows just how powerful the Lord God is, and he knows if I listen and follow the way that God wants to do this, then he will lead in victory. I'm sure David had ideas of how this would go. I wonder if David knew if this was gonna be short or long in terms of a battle, But regardless, he knew who God is, and he knew that God would rescue him and work it out in the end. And he does. And so we're going to leave our scripture for this week, and I want to encourage you to do something that I often encourage you to do, Rocky Peak, is we barely scratched the surface of this chapter And while we're gonna come back to a portion of it next week, there is so much there for the Lord to speak into your life. In the next 24 hours, would you carve out some intentional and unrushed time to just sit with 1 Samuel 17, to just read and let the voice of the Lord speak over your life. But in just a few minutes we have left, what I wanna do is I just wanna unpack a little bit further this truth that David models, that clarity doesn't come from what's ahead, because what's ahead will often be hard to see, but clarity comes from an intentional focus on the character of Jesus himself. So there in your notes, you have a section titled Opening Our Eyes to Jesus' Truth. And your fill in our only fill, or our, our main point for this week is this. Clarity is experienced when Jesus becomes our primary focus. Clarity is experienced when Jesus becomes our primary focus. A big truth that comes out of this account of David and Goliath is that clarity, real clarity, does not come from our circumstances, but real clarity comes through a relationship with Jesus. That's what it means for Jesus to become our primary focus is that he is our most foundational and most important relationship in our lives. See, the uncomfortable truth is as long as that we are on this side of heaven there will always be a champion that stands before us. There will always be a Goliath, there will always be a trial, a hardship, a suffering that can be hard to see past. But what we see through David's example is that when our focus, our primary focus is not on what's ahead, but it's on what Jesus is, who he is, and what he does because of his identity. It opens, as the the Apostle Paul says, the eyes of our heart, and it gives us a brand new or a renewed vision for who God is, for who we are, and how God can move and win, even in our deepest times of suffering and trial. David modeled that our circumstances, our seasons, don't change until our hearts do. It's not on your note sheet, but I like this quote from one of my heroes, Dr. Tony Evans, when he says that God must be free to first work in you before he will work for you. When Jesus is our primary focus and our hearts are being changed to see him clearly, then that clarity will overflow and transform the circumstances around us And we see this example in Saul, don't we? That I think one of the most humbling things about going through 1 Samuel 17 is that Saul, who's often the villain, rightfully so, in David's story, becomes amazingly relatable, doesn't he? That for Saul, God wasn't God was maybe a focus, but he was not the focus of his life. And as we've talked about earlier, that often in a difficult season, often in a prolonged difficult season, often when we're faced with uncertainty and don't have clarity as to the circumstances to come, we find our temptation is to take God and not have him be the primary focus of our lives anymore, but simply a focus of our lives. We lose, we lose hope. We become tired. We begin to look around to go okay give me a king i can see so to speak and we experience too often that just like the israeli army when we place our hopes in a Saul, he becomes outmatched i gotta be honest with you rocky peak a couple of months ago the lord convicted me of this in my life that jesus was slipping as my primary focus my eyes were shifting away and my primary focus started becoming many other things like many of us my primary focus at times was becoming the news and what was going on in the world around me my primary focus at times had started becoming the voices that were trying to solve things including my own my primary focus had become fear and anger and we're going to talk about those deadly twins in more detail next week My primary focus had become sadness and sorrow. My primary focus at times had become the life that I used to know and what I would want to return to. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be aware of any or all of those things. But again, when those become the primary focus, I am now placing something I've said before, God-sized expectations on shoulders that were never meant to carry that burden. Again, David didn't minimize the reality of what he was facing, but he modeled that through his relationship with God, through that being his primary focus, he learned to see what others couldn't. And the beautiful truth of 1 Samuel 17 is that ability that David had to see was a learned ability. It was not exclusive to David. It's what God offers each and every one of us now through relationship with Jesus. You know, just a few days ago at Christmas Eve as Michael was unpacking the account of the shepherds, he said that so often in the season he's had to go back and say, God, shepherd me right now. And there's such beauty in that because in other words, he's saying what we're talking about, God, open my eyes to who you really are. And when Jesus becomes the primary focus of our heart, we receive a brand new clarity about who he is and that then overflows into how we move forward into an uncertain future. And specifically, when we focus on Jesus, when he becomes our primary focus, we gain a new clarity in two key areas. So there in your sheet, two quick fill-ins. The first is that Jesus becomes sufficient. When Jesus becomes our primary focus, we see that he is sufficient to deal with the champions that stand in front of us. When we experience that Jesus is sufficient, we experience a clarity that tells us that you and I, we don't need a soul. And we can take off that armor and trust in Jesus the King instead. There in your note sheet, the Apostle Paul writes in, first, in Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and let's underline this last part, and in him all things hold together. And the second fill-in is this, present. When Jesus becomes the primary focus of my heart, I experience a clarity that Jesus, my King, is present now. Here in this moment, here in this season, here in my hardship, in my grief, and in my sufferings. What we experience through that clarity is this beautiful declaration that I may not be able to see what's in front of me, but I see Jesus all around me, and that's all that I need. There in your note sheet again from Matthew 28, one of the final things Jesus said to his followers, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so as I wrap things up and I invite the worship team to come on out, as we go into this final time of singing, I wanna invite you to do something special during this time of worship, Rocky Peak. If we want to be a people that have placed Jesus as our primary focus and the very first step is we need to honestly ask ourselves, has something other than Jesus become the primary focus in our lives? And the truth of the matter is too often, we don't even realize that something else has become king instead of Jesus. And so the very first step to take is to go before the Lord. I've encouraged you, spend some time in 1 Samuel 17, but in that time, go before the Lord and ask this honest question, is there anything in my life that has become my primary focus instead of you? Now, as we go into this time of worship, as we sing this beautiful song to close this time out, I wanna encourage you, take this time to do that to ask the Lord that question, are you my primary focus or has something gotten in the way? Take this opportunity to begin that dialogue, to sit, to reflect, and listen to the voice of your king, not to leave you in a beautiful conviction, but for that conviction to lead you to freedom, to repentance, and to a new empowerment, a new experience of clarity when it comes to stepping forward into an uncertain future. Amen? Amen, Rocky Peak. Let's pray. Open our eyes, Jesus. Open our eyes to see you as our primary focus. Open our eyes so our vision is no longer dominated by the champions, the Goliaths in front of us. Open our eyes so our vision is no longer dominated by the fog, by what we can't see in our circumstances to come. Open our eyes to see you above all else to see you and you alone open our eyes to see that you are sufficient that you are present that you are all we need open our eyes to the truth that when we are fixed and focused on you that is when we experience your power that is when we experience your grace in a new way That is when we can move forward, even if we can't fully see, but move forward in confidence because while I can't see what's ahead of me, I know that my Jesus is here. And so as we go into this last song, as many of us, myself included, begin to ask this question, Jesus, is there anything in my life that has become the primary focus instead of you? Father, take away the fear from that question. Take away the uncomfortability and let it be the beginning of a new experience of freedom and clarity. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your presence. It's in your name, King Jesus, that we all said amen.